We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning. Titus 2 is where we're going to be. New Testament, just before Hebrews, if you're wondering where that is. And if you're just visiting with us, uh, what we've been doing is we've been going through this series looking at the book of Titus, and we've called it The Good Life. We call it the good life because we were looking at how does the gospel transform people's lives? How does this message of Jesus Christ, these songs that we're singing, how does this transform our lives? And this morning, we're, as we get into this, the title of the message is Transformed Older People. We're going to look at specifically in some ways, how does the gospel, how should the gospel transform an older person's life? As you find Titus this morning, I'd say this, May 2-4, okay, marks the official start of good weather, long weekends, being at the cottage, like soaking up the sun, all that good stuff, right? We're excited that, it, that it's that weekend. That marks all those good things in my head. There's one other thing, though, that it marks in my mind, and I don't know if this is just me, but it marks the start of not being able to fill up your car on a Canadian tire without being hassled, without being hassled by the guy that wants you to, that wants you to buy that little spray can of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? The, the one that makes your car look really shiny and it, it protects from paint chips and rust and you're just filling up your car and you're like, dude, I don't want it. Like, no thanks, thank you, but, but no thanks. And, and they keep going. They're like, no, 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 you can't do it. Like, you can use it on more than that. You can use it on the rims of your tires and it takes off the salt and it makes your tires look really good and you're still like, dude, like, no offense, I just really don't want it. I'm just filling up with gas. And they just keep going. They're trying to find out, like, how do I appeal to you? So he just keeps going. He's like, you know what? Outside of that, it's like a great insect repellent and you can put it in your coffee in the morning. You can brush your teeth with it. Like, it's just amazing. You have to have this. And I'm still like, dude, I don't want it. The one time, though, that I was actually super tempted to get it, I almost bought it was when I was filling up and the guy was like, hey, just let me try it on your car. Like, I'll, I'll just clean your hood for you. So I was like, you want to clean my car while I'm pumping? Like, I'm, I'm okay with that. Sure, go for it. Puts it, on the, puts it on the hood of my car, and I walk around. I'm like, I'm legitimately like, wow, I didn't even know my car was that color. Like, this is great. Like, how much was that? Like, this is good. Like, I, I need that. I want that. I've seen how it transformed my car, and I was like, man, maybe I do need that. Maybe I do want that. This morning, why do I open up with that? Because this morning is, we're looking at this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, a young pastor overseeing these churches in Crete. And he's saying to them, as we get into God's word this morning, he's saying, put the gospel on display in your life. Let the transforming power of the gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, let it play out in how you live. Let other people see how it's actually transformed your life. Don't just tell them about it. Okay, you can come to church every, every week and hear how the, the message of the gospel and what God's done for you and how he can change your life and how he can give you a good life. But you know what? There's something so much more powerful is when you see it happening, when you see God at work in someone's life, in our lives, that things that we've just even talked about now, you see the transforming power of the gospel. And he's, there's a call this morning to us to say, let that be your life. Let that play out in your life. Let the people around you see the message of the gospel in your life. As we got into this, we've seen that Crete, uh, where, where these churches are located, where this letter is written to, it's a desperately immoral place. Lying, deception, being cunning, and being all about your self-gain, getting to the top by, by being shady and underhanded, it was all celebrated. It was like, good for you. you. You got some skills if you could do that. But in the midst of the desperate brokenness of people's sin and all this immorality that's going on, we see that because the gospel is being put on display, people were coming to know Christ. And oftentimes we can find ourselves thinking maybe, you know what, I'm, I'm too messy for God. My family's too messed up or broken or, or for God to change them. My heart's too hard. I've been in church for too long. I, there's too much water under the bridge in my life. God can't change me. Well, this morning we're going to see these are the exact kind of people that God was changing. When Jesus came, he said he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He came for the messed up, for the broken people. Like I said, this morning we're going to see how does this gospel change? How should this gospel change our lives? So the question this morning is really, what should a mature, older life transformed by Jesus look like? <laughs> Here's the thing for me preaching this morning, as Pastor Kai said, okay, I'm, 
I'm 29 years old. I'm 29 years old with a young family, and, uh, and as I come to share this message this morning, what, I, what, I, what an older life transformed by the gospel would look like, I get it, okay? I can't preach to you guys from, from a whole bunch of life experience. I can't say, here's all the things that I've learned, and here's all the wisdom that I have to pass on to you. But as I come this morning, I, I'm mindful of 1 Timothy 5. It says this, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women and sisters in all purity. So this morning as we get into this, as we jump into God's word, I want you to hear where I'm coming from this morning. I want to encourage you. Yes, I'm going to ask you some, some maybe awkward, difficult questions. We're going to jump into this and see how does this play out or is this playing out in our lives? But man, I'm talking to you as a father. Older ladies, I'm talking to you as I would to my mother. I, I want to encourage you. And brothers and sisters, and this is something that we all need to, to learn this morning. If you're a younger person, don't just check out and be like, oh, okay, I came for the older people. It's instructing the older people. Why? Because it then says, teach the younger people. Train the younger people to be this. This is something that we all need to be striving for. So as I talk to you younger people as well, I'm talking to you as brothers and sisters, myself included, to say, this is something that God calls us to. This is how the gospel should be changing our lives and should be playing out in our lives. So this morning it starts with this, if you're taking notes, what does this transformed life look like? It starts with the gospel. A transformed life, it starts with the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is Paul's instruction, teach what accords with sound doctrine. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in church, doctrine, the word doctrine was about as appealing to me as the word trigonometry in math class, okay? Doctrine was not like, in my mind, it was like, well, that's all the boring, like that's the textbook approach to the Bible, and that's just the stuff that people argue over, and that's the stuff that people want to get all caught up in, and I, like, I just love Jesus. I, I don't really care that much about doctrine, but then as I began to mature and grow in my faith and study this and see these things, what I realized is doctrine is really, really important. Doctrine's really important. What is doctrine? It's a stated principle or set of beliefs that are upheld. So what you believe, who you think God is, what you believe about God, what you believe about his plan for you or what he's done for you or the implications that it has in your life, it, uh, what you believe will play out in how you live. And so it's important that we teach sound doctrine, that you know that you believe sound doctrine is because it's only the gospel that can transform a life. That's what he's talking about. He's saying teach the gospel. Don't teach something else. Teach the gospel because here's the thing. We aren't interested, myself, I'm not interested this morning in, in telling you, here's some behavior modification techniques. Here's how you're going to live a, a nicer life, a happier life, a more friendly life. Here's how your family's just going to get on well. We're interested in something way more than that. We're interested in radical gospel transformation of people's lives, and that's only something that God can do. Where people are brought from an eternity separated from God to an from an eternity of death to an eternity of life. Where people come in, maybe even this morning, not knowing God as their father, not knowing God as a God who is personal to them, who loves them, who cares for them, and then being brought to that reality through Jesus Christ. We're talking about how our earthly life should look because the destination of our eternal life has dramatically changed. So here's what we believe. Here's, here's the gospel. We believe that God created us to be in relationship with him to worship him, to reflect his glory, because the Bible tells us that each and every one of us was made in his image. You can read that in Genesis. But the Bible tells us that we chose not to worship God. We chose not to love, not to obey him. We chose to go our own, own way. We actually chose to say, you know what, we'll be our own God. We're good, God, thanks, but you know what, I'll, I'll take it from here. I'll live my life. I think I, I know what's better for me. I'll, I'll, I'll make my decisions, my choices. I don't need you. And you know what, God is a holy, pure, perfect God. It said when he created us, that he looked down and he said that it was good made perfectly good. We were made perfectly good. So guess what happens when we turn away from that perfect, holy, pure, good God? We come over here and we're living our lives and suddenly we see that everything is not good. 
Everything is not perfect. We're people who have imperfect lives, people who have messed up lives, people who don't know the true love of God. The Bible tells us that we, we've all done this. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because of this, God stepped out of heaven for us. Because our sin separates us from this holy, pure, just God. If we're sinful, broken people, how can a holy, pure, just God embrace us? So we have this problem of sin, but God stepped out of heaven for us. Jesus, God as a man, came to restore our relationship. How? By dealing with the problem of our sin. By taking all the punishment, all the separation, all the humiliation even of our sin that it should cause us, we see that played out in Jesus' death because he took all of our sin upon himself. Total grace. We didn't deserve it. Took all of that sin upon himself. All of it was laid upon Jesus, nailed to the cross. It was buried in the ground. But did Jesus stay dead? You guys awake this morning? Did Jesus stay dead? No, Jesus rose, amen? Jesus rose, he rose again to prove he was stronger than the sin, stronger than death itself that could separate us from God. And he rose and he seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's through that that he makes a relationship for us with God possible again. He speaks on our behalf. It says that when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. That God, again, can see us as holy, pure, blameless, just as we were created to be in relationship with him, and it's all because of Jesus Christ. So that one day we'll see total victory over sin. We'll go to be with him in heaven, and until that day comes, we can still know God as our Father here on earth, even right now this morning. And when we give our lives to Christ, he can and he does. God's Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, and it's that relationship with God, his Spirit inside of us, that changes us and gives us a new desire. Gives us a desire to live for him. How? By allowing Jesus to live through us. Gives us a desire to to live different lives. These kind of lives that we're going to look at this morning. It's from our faith. It's from our knowledge of coming to know Jesus Christ that our our actions play out differently. Bible says it's it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not by works so that you can't boast about it. It's not about, hey, look at us and look at how well we're living. No, it's by the grace of God. And from that, it plays out in how we live. And that's the good life. Amen? That's the good life that we're talking about, knowing Christ, knowing God, knowing that there's nothing that we can do, but God has done it all for us that we can be in relationship with him. And you might say, well, why is that life so good? Because you know what? When you come to that reality, when you come to knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior and having this relationship with God, your life isn't dependent on what other people think of you. Your life isn't dependent on how much money you have or how good looking you are or how put together your family is or isn't or what kind of career you've had or when you got to retire or what kind of house you can afford. That's not what your identity is. Your identity is, I'm a child of God. Why? Because I know Jesus Christ. And everything else is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. That's the good life. So the question this morning as we start is this, has your life truly been transformed by the gospel? Has Jesus changed your life? Does the gospel change your life? And don't just say yes because we're in church. Don't be like, just, yeah, 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 it does. No, think about it. Like, does it actually change your life? Does your faith in Jesus Christ, does God's Holy Spirit living inside of you, if you've, if you've come to that place and you've acknowledged Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, can you look and say, only by the grace of God, here's where I am. Here's where I would be without God's transfer, transforming power in my life. Here's where I am and here's where he's still continuing to work on in me. This is how my life is different because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work within me. This realization of what Christ has done for us, it compels us, it should compel you, it should create a desire, a want in you to be more like Christ. Why? Because he's your hero. 
He's your Savior. And we realize that God's greatest desire for you is to know Him. There's lots of unsound doctrine in there, and we're not going to go into it in a lot of detail, but Rast did that last week with us and looking at some of those. But one, one, one unsound doctrine will tell you this, that God's greatest desire for you is to be healthy and wealthy. Sometimes we label that as prosperity gospel, and basically what it says is this, you start giving to God, and He'll give more back to you. You start giving to church, you start giving to Him and watch your bank account grow. You start living a good life and then God will take care of you. You hold up your end of the deal and God will make sure you get everything you want. You'll be rich, life will be sweet, you'll totally enjoy yourself, you'll have the fullest life you could ever imagine. And that totally lines up when you look at Jesus' disciples, right? Like, they, they were all rich and famous. They weren't beaten or they didn't have, you know, they weren't suffering or stoned out of cities or, or rejected or shipwrecked or beaten by, bitten by snakes or any of that. No, when our lives are rooted in the gospel, we realize that it doesn't matter whether we're rich or it doesn't matter whether we're going through suffering or whether we're healthy or whether we're going through times of blessing or not, that our identity is still in Christ, that our hope, that our trust, that our faith is still there. And Jesus told us to pick up our cross and follow him. James 1 says, I count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A life rooted in the gospel is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, regardless of the physical circumstances. Regardless of money, power, wealth, success, your body, regardless of that. And we look and we see some of this doctrine and people will tell you that God will never allow you to, to go through a trial. He'll never allow you to go through a hardship. You'll, you should never have suffering if, in your life if you have any of those things. If you're going through a trial, you must not be living properly. You must have hidden sin in your life. If you're sick and God didn't heal you, it's because your faith wasn't strong enough. You didn't pray the right way. You didn't say the right thing. You missed part of the magic formula. So go back and say your prayer this way and then it will work. And really what we're saying is God has to do what you ask him when you have enough faith. When you, when you have figured out what you want, God has to say yes to you. And really what we're saying is, God, you'll never say no to me. God, you can't say no to me. This is how my life should be. This is what I want my life to be, and I'm asking you for it, so you can't say no to me. And guess what? When God, says, when God does say no to us, if you believe that, it wrecks you. It completely wrecks your faith. That's why doctrine is so important. When God says, no, you know what? I'm gonna teach you through this trial. When God says, you know, I, I wanna produce steadfastness in you. I'm taking this away from you so that you'll learn to trust in me. When God loves us so much, he says, I'm gonna take this idol out of your life. I'm gonna remove something from you that you've been placing too much of your identity in. Or maybe even just says, you know what? I'm, not, I'm just not even gonna let you go there to start off with. I'm not giving you that because I know that's, that'll lead you down a path that you shouldn't go. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he suffered the loss of all things. Why? So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Man, that preaches well, right? But after that, he says, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Romans 5 tells us that God works everything for the good of those who love him. I believe that verse is there because it's saying there's going to be difficult times. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be times when there's a cost to living out your life in the gospel. You know what? Stay, stay in the gospel. Keep your life under Christ. Don't look somewhere else. Don't start listening to whatever kind of teaching that you want to hear. Stay in the gospel. Stay with your identity knowing that you're a child of God, that he does care for you, that he loves you, that he gave his own life, his own son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. 
and let the gospel produce steadfastness in you. If it was all going to be sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and butterflies, verses like this wouldn't be in the Bible. So what we believe is important. So what does a life that's truly committed and surrendered to Jesus look like? Well, second point this morning is this, a transformed life, a transformed older life that lives out the gospel. It starts with the gospel, but we also live out the gospel, and this is where we get to some specifics this morning. What does this living out the gospel look like? Well, verse 2 says this, older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So don't tune out here, ladies, because look at the, what the next verse says. It says, older women likewise. So it's given some specifics for men here, but then it's, it's also going to play off this when it comes to your instruction. So really, it's for all of us here. It says we should be sober-minded. What does sober mean? It means not under the influence. Your minds are not under the influence of other things. Your mind is to be firmly fixed on how Jesus calls you to act. You're concerned with your actions, not because it's a way for you to earn favor with God, but because you've, you've found favor with God through Jesus Christ, you want to put the gospel on display. You trust also that living out the gospel, even when it comes at a cost, is actually the best plan for your life. So are we sober-minded this morning? Older man, what's the influence of your mind? What influences your mind under? What do you think about the most, and therefore, what do you talk about the most? What do you think about the most, and therefore, what do you act on the most? What's coming out of your life? Are your actions rooted in bringing you glory or bringing God glory? Older man, if you started talking about Jesus, if you started talking about God and the gospel at the dinner table in your house, would your family look at you and be like, what's up with that? What's he talking about? Or is it something that's always on your mind, it's always ready to come out of you? I look around today and it seems as though so many of us spend half of our lives planning for the first 10 years of our retirement and what we're going to do with that when we don't have a plan for the first 10,000 years of our eternity in heaven. Older man, is your mind, older people, are your minds fixed on your retirement and how you've worked so hard and what you want to do and how you want to take time off and sit back and check it? No, the, the gospel is calling you to, if God has you here, he has you here for a purpose, to glorify him. There's work to be done for the kingdom. So he's saying, if, if we're running a race, uh, li uh, living for Christ, then he's saying, when you get to this older stage in your life, then continue to lean in, press in, like dip for the line, finish well. He's saying, be sober-minded. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And as we do that, if we're sober-minded, these things will play out. It says we are, we're called to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. What does dignified mean? It means having or showing a composed or serious manner that's worthy of respect. So are you dignified in your, in your faith? Do you see it as a serious thing? Does your faith bring a composure to you about how you act? If you're an older man in the Lord, your faith in God has been tested, you're seasoned in the Lord, you're probably not going to laugh maybe at some of the things that younger people laugh at. You've lived long enough to, to see that life, that your faith is a serious thing. Older men should be thinking about eternity more and less about temporal life. Why? Because maybe you've raised your kids. Maybe you've had to deal with prodigal children along the way. Maybe you've had to bury your parents. Maybe you've gone through work in your career and you've seen a lot through relationships. Has that produced a seriousness about your faith in your life? Bible talks about this idea of sanctification. What does that mean? That as we give our lives to Christ, as we come onto the gospel, that he continues, the Holy Spirit continues this good work in us. That if we're called to glorify Christ, that we're becoming more like Christ, we should be becoming more like Christ as we live. 
think about it this way. My, my dad used to love fixing up old antiques and, and furniture and things like that, and it was just a hobby for him, so there was days gone by when, when he wouldn't be doing anything, but as I came in and out of our garage, which kind of turned into a bit of a workshop, you'd walk in at the start and you'd see an old busted up chair, totally beat up, and you're like, I don't even want to sit in that. Like, why did he buy that? And then you come out week to week and you see, okay, now, now he's stripping it down and now he's starting to plaster in the, the, the cracks and he, he's gluing the joints together and he's, he's, he's resealing it and he's staining it and he's reupholstering it. And, and the longer it's spent in the workshop, the more time it's spent under my dad as a carpenter, the more beautiful it became, the more it was, became how it was supposed to be created to be. And I'm like, wow, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful chair. That's what it was supposed to be. And that's kind of like what, when we give our lives to Christ, this process of sanctification, if you've been under the Lord for, for 10 years, for 15 years, for 20 years, if you've known the gospel, it's saying this good work should be continuing in you. As you're living out your faith, people should be able to look at you and say, wow, that's what following Christ looks like. That's what a gospel-transformed life looks like. That's what Jesus looks like. So men, are you men who are self-controlled? Are you men who are sound in your faith? Are you men who are giving an accurate reflection of who Jesus is? What does it mean to be sound in your faith? It means confident, confident in your identity, Confident in your identity in Christ. If you're sound in your faith, you're not having a midlife crisis. You're not thinking, oh, is this all my life was? Um, maybe I want to go out and, and, and buy something else, buy a new toy, buy, buy a new cottage, buy, buy a new car, whatever it is. Maybe I need to you know, start doing something else with my life. Maybe I need to have an affair. Maybe, maybe I just need to start looking outside of this plan that, that God has for you. No, you're sound in your faith. You don't react emotionally. You aren't quick to argue or criticize or tear people down. When you're sound in your faith, you aren't men who gossip. You aren't people who gossip and talk sideways about other people. You're men, people of integrity, sound in faith. Lastly, men, I want to encourage you to be sound in love. Men, the Bible calls us to be men who love others. I'd say this, a godly man, a godly older person, all of us here, if we're in Christ, we should be people who love other people well. And yeah, I get it. Okay, guys, I get it especially up here in Muskoka, okay, I, I get it. People are like, oh, love and, like, love's for sissies, right? Like, love is for people who don't know how to go hunting and burn stuff and build things, right? No, no. <laughs> we're called to love. We're called to display the love of Christ. If we're in Jesus Christ, if we're under the gospel, a, a, an older man is going to be a man who loves other people well. Older man, do you love other people well? Do you love the people that you work with well? Do you love your family well? Do you love your wife well? Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. The gospel should create in you a love for your wife and other people, a, a persistent love, not a love that wavers depending on whether your wife obeyed you or respected you or had dinner ready for you or served all your needs. Do you love her regardless in the same way that Christ loved you, that he was ready to die for you, to sacrifice himself for you? Do other people around you see God's love in you? This love that we're talking about, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth saying if you put your life onto the gospel and allow it to come and cleanse you and sanctify you and start to wash out what your own sinful desires and allow you to become more like Christ, what's it going to be washing out of your life? It's going to be taking out your, your envy, boastfulness, arrogance, rudeness, insistence, irritation, resentment, wrongdoing. Those are things that are going to become less in your life. 
I think for all of us, nearly all of us as men, we want to be respected. You talk to guys, and, and a lot of the times if there's marriage troubles or, or things going on or just relationship troubles, you start to talk to us as guys, and I get, I, I'm a guy, you, you start to talk about it, and usually what comes out is, what's the root of the problem? Well, I don't feel respected. I don't feel like my wife respected me. I don't feel like that person respected me. That person was in my own home, and they said that to me, and that disrespected me. And for some of us, we'd rather feel respected than we would rather feel loved. And we use that to justify our actions, but I would say this, did Jesus put his love or his respect first. When Jesus went to the cross and people were, were, were beating him and mocking him and making fun of him and spitting on him, was Jesus more interested in displaying love or getting people to respect him? No, Jesus put his love first. So man, are you sound in love? Do you put the love of your family, the love of the people you work with, the, the love of your wife before respect or do you put your respect, your agenda at a premium? Let's do this. When you base your life upon Jesus, you're a man that's dignified, true to, true to God's word. You're not angry or argumentative for your own gain or ego, but you're caring. You're willing to take a stand, not on your word, but on God's word. You've got to do it with gentleness and respect. You'll be a man that has respect in your house, with your friends, with those around you, not because you fought for authority, not because you, you, you said that you had to and you ruled with a heavy hand. You, you'll have it because you demonstrate humility as Christ did. He demonstrated Christ's love above all else. I find that as God teaches me this, as I see him proving himself in my life, as I allow the gospel to, to wash out of my life and see that heal my marriage and take away my sinful desires and my dumb ideas of what I think I should do and where I should go and bring it under Christ, you know what, as I see the gospel heal that and, and work and I see the transforming power of the gospel, it creates joy in me. It creates joy in the Lord in me. That's like something that I want to share. I want to share what God's doing in my life and how he's carving off my rough edges and, and how even just coming to know Jesus Christ, it plays out in every area of my life. It has a joy that I want to tell other people about. So older men, older women, is that growing in you? Because I can think of numerous testimonies of friends that I have where a big part of their testimony was wrestling with, do I really want to follow God? Even younger people who grew up in Christian homes and they're wrestling is, do I want this? Do I want this supposed gospel? Why? Because they grew up in church as teenagers, as young people, and they looked around and they seen a bunch, of, a bunch of people singing about the joy of the Lord and they felt like going over and checking if they actually had a pulse or not. They seen older people in church fighting and arguing about the dumbest things and never offering forgiveness or pursuing reconciliation. They had a dad, maybe, who talked about forgiveness and grace and repentance, but never once demonstrated it in his own home. They seen people who said, Christ is everything to me, but lived like Christ was nothing to them. They grew up with parents who came to church, but never talked about Christ in their own home. And they looked around and said, I don't want that. There's no transformation there. There's no difference. There's no, there's no power of the resurrection. Jesus hasn't changed their life. And they look at the gospel as a bunch of rules, as a killjoy, as something that they don't want anything to do with and they run from it. How sad. How sad is that? That's why it's important that we're called as, as older people, as men, as women, in our, in our own families, in our own home, in this church, in our communities, to be putting the love of Christ, putting the gospel on display well for others to see. Why in verse 11 it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. It's the power of the gospel. 
So older women, uh, like I said, we're, we're kind of piggybacking off some of already what we've talked about here, so I spent a bit more time on that. But older women in verse 3, it starts off with a bit of a blanket statement to you, and it says this. It says they should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. It's reverent as this. It, says, it means feeling or showing deep and solemn respect. So I ask you this. Do your actions show the deepness of your faith? Does your obedience to God's word show a solemn respect? Or you people that say, well, I know I shouldn't, but I know I shouldn't talk about it. I know I, know I shouldn't be doing these things, but, but I just, I just kind of give into it. I, I want to. I have to. What does it mean to slander someone? Well, a, a, a biblical definition of slander is the utterance of false charges, misrepresentation, which defame or damage another person's reputation. It's a false oral statement about a person. Women, older women and younger women, God's word instructs you, instructs all of us, be careful how you talk. Be careful how you talk about others. Guess what, younger women, it says, it says, tell the older women to teach you this. Be careful how you talk about other people, other women, other men, maybe even other people's children. Why would we be called to do those things? Again, because it says, for the grace of God has appeared. It says that God has extended to us his grace, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get that? That while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling, while we were still going our own way, while we were still sticking it to God and saying, no, and my pride, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I don't care, Christ died for us. Extended us grace then, even when we were against him. So what does that call us to when we have someone who's a little more difficult to love in our life? Someone who kind of rubs us the wrong way, someone who maybe even seems like they're against us. How do we handle that? What do we do with that? How do we talk about that person? I find it really interesting here that Paul couples slander and being a slave to much wine in the same sentence. It was the next thing he went to. So this is just my speculation, okay, at this part, but I can't help but wonder, did Paul see both of these things as coping mechanisms? Because here's the thing, when, when your identity isn't in the gospel, we find something else to measure it by, and for all of us, it's other people. How am I doing? How am I doing to that, compared to that mom, or that dad, or, or that marriage, or, or that career? Or how, how, am I, how, are, how are my kids doing compared to those kids? When your heart is on Christ, your identity isn't based on those things. You've no desire to put others down to make yourself feel or look better. Your life isn't dependent on that. And not only that, God instructs you not to do that, not to tear other people down to say, okay, well, I gotta, I gotta have some dirt. I gotta have some gossip. I gotta have, find some faults in their life and that'll make me feel better because I gotta compare myself. I gotta be at least level or maybe a little above. This is no interest to you. Why? Because you have everything in Christ. And even when someone does hurt you, you're ready to extend forgiveness, just like Christ has forgiven you. I think in our culture today, there's a sense that, that beauty fades. You see that as you walk, as you open any magazine, you walk into any drugstore, whatever it is, there's all these products that you know, make you look younger, more beautiful, that you know, hide the wrinkles, all that stuff. I would say this, though, as an older woman grows in the gospel, lives out their calling that God's placed on their life to be reverent in behavior, not a slander, to be fully dependent on Christ and nothing else. And I know there are people in this church, older men, older women, where you could look at them and you could just say, that's a beautiful thing. Their life is beautiful. I can see Christ in that person. So question for us this morning is this, is your life made beautiful by the gospel? Here's a different way of asking it. Is the gospel made beautiful by your life? 
men and women, do other people look at you and say, that's, that's the kind of man I want to be when I grow up? That's the kind of faith that I want to have when I grow up? Older women, are you, are you life-giving to be around? Do you encourage other women? Do you share the gospel with them? Do you, do you train them? Do you come alongside? Do you build other people up? That even right now, for people who are making decisions and figuring out what they want to do with their lives, that they can set their eyes on someone and say, man, that's the kind of lady I want to be. That's the kind of man I want to be. That's where Paul said, he said, imitate me. How, what, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Are you putting Christ on display? Are you giving a godly example to people to say, that's the kind of life that I want because I can see a transformed life in the gospel? Verse 4, it says, teach what is good. Older ladies, it says, teach what is good. Train the, young, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. I know there's, there's maybe some women in this room that as you read that, your, your straightaway reaction would be, why? Why live like that? Why would I want to do that? I want a different rule. It says, it says, so the word of God may not be reviled. It's saying, women, as you do these things, as you do these things that God is calling you to, when you're married, when you're in a home, God's word, the gospel, when you're putting it under his, when you're putting your life under that, his love and his care, it's put on display. It's glorifying to God. There's a role that God has created for you uniquely. Just as man could say, I, I don't want the weight. I don't want the weight and responsibility of leading my home. I don't want to have to pastor my home or, or, or lead my home or, or care for my wife. I, I don't want to put all my wife's needs above mine. I don't want to die sacrificially for my wife. We could say, I don't want to do that. But God calls us to do that. Why? Because we have rules that we're, we're, both trying, we're both painting the picture of who Christ is in our marriages. Doing it in slightly different ways, but that's, but that's the agenda for, for both of these things, to, to glorify God, to put the love of Christ on display. If we're painting a picture, it's kind of like asking, what's more important, the paint or the paintbrush? Well, both. They got, they got different roles, but, but they're equal. Women, that's not, this isn't an inferior calling. It's the same calling. It's just a different instruction on how to do it. Saying, man, love your wives like Christ loves the church. In Ephesians 5, it says, women, submit to your husbands just as the church, all of us, submit to Christ. Just like Christ said when he was here, not my will but yours, he submitted to the Father. He said, I've come to do the will of the Father. In Philippians 2, it says, Christ being in the form of God did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and was obedient. Our roles as both men and women are to bring this picture of who Christ is into our lives, into our marriages, into our homes, into the world around us for other people to see. That's what it's saying, teach what is good. I would say this, when you see a marriage that's, that's functioning properly, functioning in a godly way, when a husband is leading his family, sacrificing his needs for them, caring for them, loving them, supporting them, putting them first. When it's a place where a woman's comfortable and secure in herself to, to love her husband and kids and it's a safe place for her to submit, you can't fault that. You really can't fault that. You can't criticize that. That's what every chick flick is made of based on the girl wanting the guy to prove his love for her and, and, and show how much he loves her so that she can come alongside him and they can live happily. Like, it's, it's rooted in the gospel. So older couples, do you invite single people, married people over to your house and allow them to see your marriage and how God has trained you to love each other well? I would say this, maybe you're here and you're like, well, I'm not married yet. That's great, but I'm not married yet. I don't have a husband, I don't have a wife. I'll say this, when I got married, I didn't wake up and say, whoa, okay, I, I got to start acting differently now. 
I, I got to start doing all of these things. No, it was just it was a continuation on. And I've had Amelia with me in my life. So if, if you're not married yet, are you still walking these things out in your life? Are you being kind? Are you being pure? Are you practicing submitting, submitting to God's word? Are you practicing putting the love of Christ on display? Because again, why do any of this? Verse seven and eight, it says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be contemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. What it's saying is live your life in a way that when people try to come and slander you and this gospel claim that you have in your life, they won't be able to find a way to fault you. They won't have any am on you. They won't be able to say, well, you know what? They say they've been saved by the grace of God, yet they're totally unforgiving. They won't be able to say that. They won't be able to say, he says he loves his wife like Christ loves the church, but he's always ready to complain about her, or I've seen him looking at other women or making comments that he shouldn't. They can't say, well, she, she says she loves her husband and submits to him, but anytime we meet up, she always complains about the choices he makes, or she's always comparing him to somebody else's husband. People won't be able to look at us and say, they say Christ is all they need, but they also seem to need alcohol or substances or have some piece of gossip or dirt on someone else so that they can cope. So again, does the works of your life reflect the faith that you have in Jesus Christ? I think so often we're, we're, we're really quick to jump on the, this idea of, well, well, is it our faith or, or is it works? Like, how does this all play out? Because surely if we just have faith, then Christ has saved us, so it doesn't matter uh, about our works. And I would say that in a room this size, there's people that are on the other end of that spectrum and say, no, 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 it's all about works. I need to live a good life. I need to be this. I need to do that. I need to be all of these good things that we're talking about. And then that's how I'll find favor with God. And, and there's this question of like, what is it? Which is it? I would say this passage shows that, that it's both. Both in what regard, though? Both that in the sense that, yes, it's your faith that saves you. It's, it's confessing your, your desperate need of Jesus Christ. It's a, but what, what's part of that? When Jesus came, he said, repent, turn away from your sin. He said, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your savior, that's something that only God can do. It's the grace of God that saves you. There's nothing that you can do to find favor with God in your own works. But as you find that, then it's gonna play out in your life. If that's truly where your faith is rooted, then yes, it's also gonna play out in your works. So, so which is it? Well, they should both be in your life. It should be rooted in your faith of the gospel of who Christ is, and that should play out with how you live. So I would say this, where in your life are you refusing to let your faith in the gospel change how you live? Is your faith changing how you act? Where are you resisting in that where you say, well, I know I should. I know God calls me to this. I know he says that in his word, but I'm just not doing that. Where are the gospel gaps in your life of what you believe and what you live? You can close that gap this morning by giving it to Christ. As we finish this morning quickly, I've got one last point and I'll be quick. See, this transformed older people, a transformed life, it attracts others to do the same. It attracts others to love and live the gospel. Look at this passage. Verse one, it says teach. Verse three, teach what is good. Verse four, train the young women. Verse six, urge the younger men. Verse seven, be a model of good works. Why? Verse 10, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
that people would love the gospel, that people would love who Jesus is, what he's done for them as they look and see it played out in your life, that they would begin to love the gospel as they see that it works, as it transforms people, as it heals. So mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather, would your children say you love the gospel? Are they growing up seeing this is what it is to live the gospel out in your home? Does your love point them to Jesus and what he's done for them on the cross? In our church family, does the younger generation look up and say, that's the kind of man, that's the kind of woman I want to be? I want to be sanctified like they've been. I want to have a heart for mission, for prayer, for disciple-making, for sharing Jesus like those people do. It's not for us to sit back and say, well, that's just youth today. That's just the generation today. They're, They're kind of different. Time for us to check out, time for them to take the reins. It's like, no, 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 lean in, finish well, continue to live out the gospel well, continue to serve, continue to train, continue to do this, continue to be passionate about it. And young people, it's calling you, it's saying, strive to have these kind of people in your life. Look for that, look for those people who will be able to disciple you well. What kind of people? Spiritually mature people spiritually mature people, people whose lives are reflecting this, it's played out in, this, in their life, okay? I think there's so many young people that are desperate for mentors, but you know what? If your mentor is going to be Grandpa Willie, who smokes 40 a day and is a raging alcoholic and cusses out everybody, probably not a good mentor to allow you to speak into your life. You want to find somebody who's rooted in the gospel, who loves the gospel, who's living it out, who's going to point you to Jesus with the decisions you make. So as the worship team comes up this morning, as we finish off, maybe you're here and you're like, you know what, this seems way too much. It seems too unrealistic. This is unattainable for me. I'm going to be that person that other people are going to look at and say, you know what, yeah, I'm not perfect. They're going to have something to say about me. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what, I'm not living this side of my life. I'm not living this side of my home and I'm not living it out because really my heart before the Lord isn't right. Yeah, these actions over here that I've been trying so hard to upkeep, that's not actually the problem. My problem is my heart before the Lord. Wherever you are in that, whether whether you say that your faith is strong but it's not playing out in your life, or whether you've been focusing over here saying, these are all the good things I'll do and God will find favor in me, wherever that gap is in your life, the good news is you go to the same place this morning. You come and you surrender it to Christ because it's Christ who makes this relationship possible. It's Christ who forgives us our sin. It's Christ that when we call out, when we surrender our lives, when we surrender our hearts, when we surrender our actions to him, it's Christ. It's Christ who, who, who brings us transforming power. It's Christ who brings us into relationship. Look at verse 13, it says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if you're here and you're like, I can't do that, it's gonna be too much, I don't wanna commit to something and I don't wanna watch myself fail, you know what, you're right, you can't. You can't do it in your own strength. But Christ can. The power of the Holy Spirit can. What's training us to do this? Is it the judgment of God? Is it the wrath of God? Is it the need to earn God's favor? No, it's the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared. And Christ is here this morning. And maybe you were here this morning and you just came because it's May 2-4 and you had to come to church. And maybe God's word, God brought you here this morning to speak to you and say, you know what? I want to redeem you. 
I want to make you a person for my own possession. I want to transform your life. I want you to stop resisting me and come to this place where you know me as your heavenly father, how I created you to be in the first place. That you'd be something beautiful. You'd be a person whose faith, whose life is rooted in the gospel, and you're a person, therefore, who's zealous for good works. Let's stand together. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father God, we're going to come and we're going to sing to you right now. We're going to sing a song that says, I surrender. I surrender all. God, would we be people who are ready to surrender to you this morning? People who are ready to surrender our hard hearts. God, if you've been speaking to us, if you've been convicting us, maybe things in our life that aren't right, our, our heart isn't right before you, and therefore it's been playing out in our actions of, of how we live or, or what we're doing or how we're treating our wives or our children or our kids or, or things that aren't right in our lives. God, would we not leave this place just, just going away saying, well, I'll just try harder. God, would we be a people who come and are ready to surrender to you this morning, to surrender to the power of the gospel, to surrender to Jesus Christ. God, if there's people here this morning, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, who doesn't, hasn't had that life transformed, is living in the chains of sin and brokenness and feeling the weight of that and seeing that all around them, God, would, they, would this morning be a morning where you come? and you surrender. You surrender your life to Christ this morning. Would we use this time this morning as we sing to have our hearts right before you, to have our hearts right before maybe even some that we've came with this morning, that this morning would be the morning to say, this is the morning where my life, tra- my, where my life transformed where I experienced the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ as I came, I surrendered my life to him, I gave it to him, and now I can know God as my heavenly father. I pray all these things in your name and the precious blood of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen.